you cannot have a relationship with someone without having some level of trust. And you cannot have a deep relationship with someone without having a deep trust. To work effectively in collaboration with others, we need to have strong relationships. To have strong relationships, we need to have strong trust. It's as simple as that. Welcome to another episode of our Continuous Improvement Podcasts. I am Rick Hyland with RLG International. Our purpose is to provide current and future C-suite leaders the mindset, skill set, and tool set to become leaders of continuous performance improvement. Very excited about today's topic. It's headline, Developing Trusted Partnerships can help you achieve a step change in performance for yourself and for your team. So why do we speak on this topic of trust on this podcast? And uh, as a personal editorial note, I've noticed too many times over the last several months in traveling and consulting around the world where people and companies lack trust, in particular where a contract is present between two companies. And I'd like to be able to influence that conversation with this podcast and other mediums to get us to be more trustworthy and more trusting. Let's look at the data on both the problem and the opportunity around trust. Uh, Harvard Business Review in 2017 did a, published a study. Compared with people at low trust companies, people at high trust companies report 74% less stress, 106% more energy at work, 50% higher productivity, 13% fewer sick days, 76% more engagement, 29% more satisfaction with their lives and 40% less burnout. Wow, I don't know how they come up with that study, but that is impressive. What leader or manager of an organization wouldn't want less sick days, less stress, more energy, and of course the ever uh, the goal that we're all trying to get to, higher productivity. Also, Stephen M. R. Covey in his book, The Speed of Trust, quotes two studies that highlight the value of trust. First of all, in 2002, a Watson-Wyatt study High trust organizations outperform low trust organizations in total return to shareholder by 288%. Additionally, according to a 2005 study by the Russell Investment Group in Fortune magazine, the 100 best companies to work for, which trust constitutes 60% of the criteria, they those companies earned over four times the return of the broader market over the period of seven years. That's why we're talking about trust on this podcast today. And I can see at least three specific applications for our CI for Life listeners. Number one, if you're in sales, if you have a client or customer, either external or internal, uh, anybody that you have to pitch to, anybody that you have to sell to. And I want you to think also, not just external sales, but internal. How many uh, today do we have to influence properly other departments in order to be successful at your goals. Number two, second area, uh, forming partnerships and organizations to deliver complex capital projects and turnarounds. And our guest Ron Kiskis will speak more to that um, in the podcast later in the podcast. We have to have trust with different organizations or departments in order to deliver a very important result for your company. And the third area of application for our CI for Life listeners is Anybody in a business or personal relationship that needs improved trust to be a better partner, parent, etc. So, pretty much anybody. Uh, no matter what your level of interest increasing trust in the work relationships or personal relationships, I hope you can find value, motivation, and inspiration from our podcast today. I've invited a special guest to join me on this topic of trust. 
I'd like to welcome Ron Kiskis to the podcast. Ron, welcome. How are you today and where are you today? Well, I'm just fine, Rick. Thank you. And I hope you are as well. Um, I'm at beautiful Lake Tahoe, California, where I live full time with my wife, Nancy, and our darling golden retriever dog, Brooke. Oh, good for you. As I just mentioned to you offline, my future son-in-law has a place on Lake Tahoe as well, and I've heard it's uh, absolutely fantastic, particularly this time of year. So, Ron, welcome. Let me give the listeners a little bit of uh, your background, and then you can add to it, please. Ron is a former executive with Chevron Corporation over his 40-year career with Chevron. This is an interesting line. Not many people can say this. He went from chemist to president of the Chevron Oronite Company, which is a wholly owned specialist chemical company which develops and manufactures and markets fuels, lubricants, and additives. He currently has his own consulting and training company and has taught and trained uh, many field-proven trust concepts to both RLG and many other clients over the last several years. Uh, Ron, I asked you to join the podcast because you are well known for your training on the topic of trusted advisor, both to us, Deloitte, and a growing list of major companies um, all over the world, really. Um, Ron, anything else about your background that you'd like to add? Well, nothing with regard to the professional background, but but yeah, maybe maybe I could add something um, that more relates to my personal background. Thank you. Um, and it sets the stage for today's podcast where we're featuring trust, as you just mentioned. Fairly late in my Chevron career, during one of my annual performance reviews with one of the best bosses I ever had, he informed me that before the review, he had sought feedback on me from a wide range of both superiors and peers of mine. He told me that he was actually rather taken aback by the results. Wow. While more than half of the respondents had a high opinion of me, both professionally and personally, a disturbingly significant percentage of respondents did not. And perhaps even more surprisingly, there was absolutely no one in the middle. It was very black and white. And while he did not name names of who my detractors were, it was not hard for me to figure out. Years later, unfortunately, it became very clear to me why these individuals did not hold me in high regard. They were all peers of mine, and I now believe saw me as overly ambitious and competing with them to move up the corporate ladder. With hindsight, and now possessing a far greater appreciation for the power of trust and relationships, it's now crystal clear to me that they simply did not trust me or my motives. In their minds, right or wrong, I was not on their team. I was not interested in them as a person, and I certainly was not looking out for their best interests. Proof wasn't needed. Their perception was all that mattered. I bring up this both painful and disturbing time for me because it didn't have to be this way. I could have managed all these relationships better. It was up to me, not them, to build trust with them. And I didn't. Later in the podcast, I'll discuss ways to build trust with people in both practical and straightforward ways. I will encourage you to explore these trust-building avenues now so that you won't have to spend a 40-year career discovering these insights yourself through trial and error the hard way like I did. Building all of your relationships on the trust foundation will hopefully help you avoid the situation that I found myself in. Wow, Ron, thank you for sharing that. I have had the ambitious feedback as well. And uh, wow, you know, what I've been also reading and listening lately about vulnerability 
And uh, what a great example you just shared with us right there. And, and uh, as you said, you'll tie that into our trust topic. Uh, I dare not ask you this next question, uh, but because uh, you've been so open already, but <clears throat> I always like to ask my listeners or my guests uh, if a personal leadership question and kind of an influential leadership question, what other good or bad experience, Ron, uh, what, what example do you have or experience do you have in your career that really helped you define your leadership style? Well, Rick, I could certainly just simply repeat the above story, yeah. but I, I have <laughs> another another pivotal moment in my own personal uh, leadership development journey, which might be of interest and relevant to many of our podcast listeners. Um, I made a decision at some point to alter my leadership style, um, and, and basically the issue was uh, my style, before I changed, was way too consensus-oriented in okay. my decision-making, to a fault, frankly, even in the eyes of individuals who at heart were consensus builders themselves. So it was just, you know, too much of a good thing, if you will. Okay. A highly skilled and effective executive coach was finally able to convince me with a lot of performance feedback data that I was just simply overdoing the consensus building. And once I was finally able to appreciate that this style was both frustrating and demotivating to many of my direct reports, I made the decision to alter my style. I decided and communicated that I would be adopting an altered leadership style. On important matters, being a consensus builder at heart, which I still am, okay. uh, I would still uh, seek the opinions of many, if not all of my direct reports. But once I gathered these perspectives, that was it. Um, the perspectives usually vary pretty widely, uh, and then I would just simply make the decision uh, based on that data and my own feelings that I felt was the best, which may or may not have been the prevailing view if there even was one of, of my team members. Equally important, I would then widely communicate that decision along with my rationale for making that decision. I then set clear direction on what I wanted as an outcome without dictating how to get that outcome. The decisions on how to achieve the outcome were largely delegated to my direct reports. Armed with clearly understanding my decision, having clear direction on desired outcomes, and then the delegated authority to determine how best to achieve the desired results, my direct reports felt motivated, trusted, and empowered in ways that they had never been before. They were to a person far happier, and they performed better and got results far quicker than I ever could have imagined. Wow. Wow. We could finish the podcast right here. What a great <laughs> we could. story about leadership and leadership style. So, Ron, let me ask you a follow-up question in there, if we could, before we jump into the material and trust. What, what did you do if you were wrong then? As a consensus builder, then sh making the shift... Still getting input, I heard that part, and then making a clear decision, explaining the whys of why you've made the decision, even though all the teammates may not have agreed. Um, what do you do if you're wrong? Three months later, you find out you moved to a decision that maybe wasn't the right one. Have you got a thought or example about that? Well, yeah, I, I, I actually do have a thought on that. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of optionality in decision-making. I mean, you you do need to make decisions clearly. You need to make them however you make them on the best information that you have. But nobody has a crystal ball and things yep. can change. They can be perfect right now. And for whatever reason, maybe unpredicted or beyond your control, yeah. things change. 
So when I, the, the, I'm glad you asked the follow-up question. When I made the decision, it wasn't like this is the right answer. This is the only right answer. Everybody's going to follow it, and like that's the end of it. This is the best decision that I can make at this time. And like I said, explaining the rationale to people so they could understand it was really, really important. And, and, and they could see as well as I could, there's no guarantees in life. So I would try to, maybe not in all circumstances, maybe not communicate widely, but at least with my direct reports, think about a plan B or a plan C. In other words, if things don't plan uh, go the way that we've planned, plan A, um, how would we know that? When would we know that? And, and most importantly, when would we jump off of plan, B, uh, plan A and go to plan B? So we didn't have a fully baked plan B or plan C, but we yeah. had thought about them in advance. That made it an awful lot easier when things did change and plan A no longer was the best plan to move. Because leaders get themselves in a trap. Uh, and, and I did all the time, <laughs> and I got less than a trap as time went on. In the plan A, plan A and communication seems to be right. So when it's wrong, then inherently leaders feel really vulnerable. Well, I said this, and now it's that, and I'm going to look like the fool. I mean, forget about all that stuff. Nobody can guarantee it. So it's fine to say, yeah, we've thought about optionality, and we're going to change if needed, and here's what that might look like. But for now, plan a is the way we're going to go. So actually, in my humble opinion, when you go to plan B, the leader doesn't look foolish or wrong. The leader looks astute to have a plan B and to have the guts to move off of plan A and to go to a plan B. So that's what I yeah. tried to do. Again, I got a whole lot better at that later in my career than earlier, but, right. but that works pretty well if it's communicated and understood. Isn't that great to pass on that kind of knowledge early, as you've said earlier in this podcast, so that Maybe uh, people younger in their career could learn now, uh, having not having to go through 40 years. But two two yeah. points in there, Ron, that I, <laughs> that I liked. Yeah. Uh, one, the humility, because sometimes we get our ego attached to the idea once we've decided, and then you know, come heck or high water, that's going to happen. But to the humility to say, you know, things have changed. Uh, let's let's take a course correction. That is a key ingredient of leadership that you just illustrated. And then we always talk about in, in project planning and turnaround planning, the importance of having a contingency plan or a plan B. So I think the combination of those two ideas right now are excellent insights for our, our listeners. So uh, thank you for that. So Ron, if we could, let's jump right into the material around trust. And first of all, let's start our foundation. Let's build our home. What is trust and why is it so important? Well, I took the time to go to the dictionary, <laughs> and you. the Webster Dictionary definition of trust is assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. So that, that's what the book says. Okay. Probably all true. In <laughs> practical terms, however, trust is intrinsic to and, in my view, forms the core of all relationships, both personal and professional. In fact, in the extreme, I believe that trust and, and relationship converge, i.e., trust defines the relationship uh, and relationship is trust. So they're one and the same, really, in the extreme. You cannot have a relationship with, that, with someone without having some level of trust. Yes. And you cannot have a deep relationship with someone without having a deep trust. In the professional world, we as individuals do not operate, or at least do not operate effectively, as an island. Of necessity, we deeply interact with and rely on each other. 
The larger and more complex the challenge at hand, the more we, of necessity, must work collaboratively. To work effectively in collaboration with others, we need to have strong relationships. To have strong relationships, we need to have strong trust. It's as simple as that. Wow, well said. And in today's world, we're in our matrix organizations where fewer and fewer people that we need on our team actually directly report to us, this idea of influence and trust is even that much more important. Uh, thank you for those yeah, insights. Yeah, I mean, it's a real important concept that probably an awful lot of people know. So, I mean, as a, as a leader, how do you lead? Do you lead, lead by power or do you lead by influence? And, right. and your comment about matrix organization, if people don't report to you, you don't have a lot of power over them. Not that I would recommend that's yeah. the proper way anyway, but setting that aside, it, it's really about influence and influence is about building trust and building relationships. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely uh, essential in today's world, maybe less so 40 years ago when things were not quite as complex when I started as they are now, but this is this is the world we live in now. Yeah, well said. Good. Okay. Then the million dollar question, how do you build trust? Well, in their seminal book, The Trusted Advisor, uh, Meister, Green, and Galford described trust in the form of an equation, the trust equation. Trust equals a combination that I'll describe of credibility, reliability, intimacy, and self-orientation, four, four factors. The importance of credibility, which is mainly about words and proof points, and reliability, which is mainly about actions in building trust, should be rather self-evident. Less so, however, are intimacy and self-orientation. In the context of trust, intimacy can be described as a willingness of both parties to openly discuss difficult and very often emotional issues. Intimacy is needed to make a connection to the interior emotional state of the client. Credibility, reliability, and intimacy all appear in the numerator of the trust equation. So trust equals, and in the numerator, credibility, reliability, intimacy. Okay. Self-orientation, which is the tendency to focus on ourselves, rather than the other person is in the denominator. Thus, with credibility, reliability, and intimacy being in the numerator, the higher they are, the higher trust is. Conversely, being in the denominator, the lower self-orientation is, i.e., the lower we're focusing on ourselves, the higher trust is. Plus, there are three components in the numerator, credibility, reliability, and intimacy, but only one self-orientation in the denominator. This makes self-orientation three times more powerful in building trust than any of the other three. Having low self-orientation is the single most important thing you can do to build trust with the other individual. Wow, three times, even based yeah. on your, the mathematical formula. So <laughs> let me let, let me ask math you. Math doesn't lie. Yeah, the math, the math works. <laughs> And uh, you and I believe that to be true. So what, let's focus on self-orientation for a second. What, what would you recommend to me and listeners to have proper or decrease my self-orientation? Do you have some tips and tricks there or some uh, mindset ideas for us? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's probably mindset and mind over matter. I mean, okay. uh, of necessity, my view is 
I mean, we all need to be self-oriented uh, self to a degree. I mean, we need to have an ego. We, we need to have uh, respect for ourselves. We need to have self-esteem. We, we need to have things that we're trying to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ever say your self-orientation should be zero. That, okay. That's not the point. The point is in building a relationship to set that aside for the moment. I mean, your counterparty, if they want to build a relationship, they're going to be interested in all those things to build a relationship with you. But you don't have to lead with those things. So the point is not to forget about all those things, but to just flip the order. We're, we're all too anxious, or most of us are too anxious, to talk about ourselves, our credibility, what I've done, all that stuff. You know, all that's fine. But it has its place in time, and that's not the first thing. The first thing is to try to understand the other person. So if you're in the selling process, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but if you're in the selling process and you're in a hard sales mode, a traditional sales mode where you're, you're trying to get your client to buy what you're trying to sell, that's hard slogging because no matter what your client says, um, unexpectedly, you have to have an instantaneous fantastic answer to that. If it's a yes, but you have to go, no, 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 you don't understand. So you always have to be on point with an answer, a leading. That, that is hard work. Yeah. In the trust-based selling approach, it's exactly the opposite. It's much easier. Your approach in trust-based selling is truly try to, under, try to understand what the client needs. That's your first priority. And at the start, that's your only priority. So it's really just flipping the order. It's not one or the other. It's just starting with your client or the other party. If it's personal, professional, you don't have a client, you have a partner or whatever. Yeah. It's the same thing. You start with what's important to that person and really try to understand it. It's far easier to ask questions. Hey, Rick, I don't understand this. How do you think about that? Why do why'd you, it's far easier to do that and more natural than it is, Rick, let me tell you about all the things that I do and why I'm so smart and you need to partner with me. That, that's tough work. Wow. So yeah. that, that would be the advice I, I would give yeah. you to flip the order. <laughs> well, that's an excellent insight. You know, I, the idea, and it's even more comfortable to ask questions at the beginning of a meeting than it is to start espousing and talking and see, you know, having people judge you whether you're right or wrong or on point. But uh, so I like that practical tip of asking questions, but it does remind me of, you know, a book that I love that was very influential for me personally in my twenties of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people seek first to understand before being understood. So in sales uh, and in trust building, that principle jumps out for me as well as you described that formula. So let's jump into that, Ron, if we could. Uh, we talked yeah. about at the beginning of the podcast about applying this to our personal uh, relationships, to uh, projects and uh, big capital projects and, and relationships between companies. But let's first start on sales, both internal or external. How does this apply if we're trying to sell something then? Yeah. Okay, well, I, I alluded to this already, but yep. yeah, it's, it's important to really un, unpack this. So I think that the beneficial reliance on trust is the cornerstone of the selling process. Uh, and, and it's often described as trust-based selling. Um, at this point in the trust-based selling training programs that, that I run, um, 
when we're early in the process. I asked the participants in these training programs, how many of them would like to close far more sales with less effort and far more enjoyment? <laughs> and I always get a unanimous show of hands. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> so if you podcast listeners answered yes, then I recommend you pay particular attention to this section on, on trust-based selling. This is really the, the core of, uh, of the message today. So trust-based selling could be contrasted to what I would term as traditional selling or hard sales. These different sales approaches can easily be differentiated by considering the mindset of the salesperson. So consider the mindset difference between these two objectives. In traditional selling, the salesperson's mindset is to convince their client to buy from them. Simple as that. The salesperson's mindset in trust-based selling is to assist the client in making the best possible decision for them, period. Mm. Period. Period. <laughs> so why do I emphasize the word period? Because at the outset of the selling process, and I'm talking about at the outset, in the, in the first engagement, when you're beginning to discuss it, there's nothing else on the mind of the trust-based salesperson except for assisting their client in making the best possible decision for them. That's it. There's nothing else at that stage of the process. So the statement ends in a period. So just for fun, what would happen if we put a comma at the end of the statement rather than a period? So we're moving from so math case, to English here. Okay, carry on, Ron. <laughs> we've gone from math to English, okay. and I'm not an expert in either one, yeah, but me stay neither. with okay. me here for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so if we put a comma there, the mindset of the salesperson would then likely be something like, quote, to assist the client in making the best possible decision for them, comma, and then try hard to sell a product or service that their company has, which meets this need. Okay. I'm sorry. This is still traditional selling. It's just dressed up in a nicer package. Carefully listening to what your client really wants and needs, and then assisting them in making the best possible decision for them, demonstrates a very low self-orientation on the part of the salesperson. And going back to the trust equation, the lower the self-orientation, the higher the trust. In contrast, in the traditional sales approach, it's all about the salesperson selling his or her solution. What's the self-orientation here? Extremely high. It's all about them. When self-orientation is very high, trust on the client's part is very low. And clients don't buy things from people they do not trust. Wow. Great insights. Great insights. Seek first to understand. Find out what their needs are uh, first. People trust that uh, if you think about your personal or professional relationships. Okay, thank you, Ron. I really appreciate your thoughts there. And I know you do some great work and some great training in that area. So if, you could, if we could, let's jump to that second area of interest. The last few podcasts have been a, about application to big projects and turnarounds and things or events that are very important to many of our clients around the world. Um, let's apply these principles to uh, a capital project. And as you know, many of these projects lack trust in contractual relationships. There's so much money on the line. There's a lot of uh, lack of trust 
and uh, many of our, our clients are letting the contract do the work and at the sacrifice sometimes of teamwork and trust and relationships and some of the things that we've been talking about here today. So, Ron, how can we apply these principles to large capital projects and, for example, between engineering companies and the owner-operator? Well, Rick, first I would say that, that I agree with you. I, I fear that this situation, uh, in, in your words, sort of letting the contract do, do the work is is where we arrive far too many times in, in too many projects. Not all the time, but yeah, but yeah I, I see it all the time too. So when the situation devolves uh, to the point that individuals are letting the contract do the work, you're obviously already at a point where trust is already completely broken down. Getting it back at this point will be very hard and will require both parties sincerely wanting to do so. In most cases, that's not very likely because trust has been destroyed, so neither partner has much of a desire to do that. Uh, it's far better, obviously, to never let things get to this point in the first place. So, so how do we do that? How do we prevent that outcome? Well, I would once again refer back to the trust equation. At the outset of the project, both parties, in, in your example, the engineering company and, and the operator, likely consider each other to have high credibility and high reliability, or they probably never would have signed a contract in the first place. So building trust at the start of a project does not likely entail further emphasizing credibility and reliability. You need to focus on the other two components, intimacy and self-orientation. Recall that intimacy involves making a connection to the interior emotional state of the client. How do you reveal this? A great approach is to use inquiry. I already alluded to this. Yep. You might simply ask the counterparty, what are the one or two most important measures of success for them in the project? This is a non-threatening question, which they will likely be very willing to answer, since getting these results is in their own best interest. You can then reciprocate by communicating your own one or two most important measures of success. As long as your client's measures of success are not in direct conflict to your own, you can commit in front of your client that you will work equally hard as they will to achieve their most desired result. Then communicate these measures, the client measures, widely throughout your team members, and then hold your team accountable for openly striving to meet these client goals as much as you're striving to meet your own. Since this is all about making your client successful, you are demonstrating very low self-orientation in front of your client, which drives high trust. And boy, does this ever build trust with your client. Then execute against this client promise every day. This is the perfect anecdote to letting trust deteriorate during the course of a project. Wow, Ron, so much to unpack and, and uh... Thank you for the explanation on the intimacy side. I meant to have you describe that or how to get there. Uh, but you're right. I see these relationships form under credibility and reliability. And um, the intimacy and self-orientation is missing. And so you've given us some ideas on how to do that. Uh, it's also interesting, Ron, that in our research on capital projects, very often um, leaders are replaced. And uh, very often when a senior leader in an engineering company, for example, is re replaced on a mega project or a company senior leader, performance improves. And I think you've just described, and, and one of the reasons why is that the trust has deteriorated, 
uh, a leader has been replaced, which has its co own costs potentially mm -hmm. to the project because now you lose all that knowledge and background. But uh, usually you get a fresh start uh, where you can build trust from there and uh, a better sense of intimacy. So uh, that that fits with the research we've done on capital projects as well. Okay. Um, yeah. Any other comment on on that? No, I, I don't think so. It, it's I mean, it's just try to never get in the situation in the first yeah. place. And so I focused more more on that. I, and I suppose you could use the trust equation when when things are in their darkest days and whatever. But like I say, both parties just inherently are distrustful. So no matter what you're trying to do to improve the relationship, it, it's seen in a non-trusting fashion. So it, it's really tough. Yeah, and I do find that clients are understanding that you have your own needs too, but if you put theirs first, they will allow you know you to have your own you know profitability needs or whatever it might be. So um, I, I think people are very respectful once you put your their needs uh, very first. So Ron, my passion as well is to apply these CI principles to uh, personal relationships as well, and. Uh, this is a an interesting tie-in. Your thoughts led me to one of my favorite marriage books by Will Willard Harley called His Needs, Her Needs. And in that, for successful marriages, it talks about the importance of sharing and articulating your honest needs. And in a marriage for, you know, in particular, uh, those needs may be very different. And so the the discussion you just had between contractual parties also applies to uh, personal relationships as well. Any any comments or thought on, on that, Ron? Well, I guess I'd start by saying that I'm certainly not an expert on marriage, although <laughs> Nancy and I have been married for 49 years. Congratulations. So we, we must be doing something. Yes. You know, it's, it's interesting, Rick, in your example, um, Willard Harley, I guess you said his name was, talks about the importance of sharing and articulating uh, your honest needs to strengthen a marriage. Yeah, it strikes me as being identical to the concept of intimacy in a business relationship that I just talked about a few yep. minutes ago. Um, for example, making a connection to the interior emotional state of the client and trying to understand the things in the business relationship that they value the most. As a result, I really wouldn't give a different answer at all when it comes to building a strong personal relationship versus building a strong business relationship even in the strongest and most intimate of all relationships, which of course is, is marriage. In, in business, we very often cannot choose who we must interact with. Uh, for example, maybe you're directed as, as the, the vendor, if you will, to, to negotiate with the chief procurement officer. You don't have a choice in that. You don't have a choice who that is. That's the person you're in front of. That's the person you have to build a relationship with. So like I say, we, we often in business can't really choose um, who we want to form a relationship yeah. with. We, we, we have to have to try hard to form a relationship with anybody and everybody that, that presents themselves. In our personal lives, however, we can and do choose who we are friends with. If we don't like or using the theme of today, don't trust someone, we can simply walk away and the relationship ends, period. Thus, in personal relationships, I could even argue that the trust stakes, if you will, are even higher since the consequences of mistrust can be dealt with immediately and permanently very easily by either party simply by walking away. Yeah, thank you for 
application to our personal relationships. And I agree, it's just as important. So, Ron, in closing, anything else about trust or continuous improvement that you want to comment on before we go? Well, yeah, maybe I could just close by um, the trust-based selling concept is, is just full of paradoxes. And so maybe I'll close with just a, a couple of my favorites, but there's there's a bunch more. So a couple of my favorites are uh, paradoxes. The best way to influence clients is to stop trying to influence them. Another one, the, the best way to build credibility uh, is to admit you don't know something. And my all-time favorite is the best way to sell is to stop trying to sell or, or at least stop trying to sell the traditional way. Yeah. Ron, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, preparing for and being on this podcast today and for your exceptional insights and perspectives on trust. And uh, I wish you all the best and uh, have fun in Lake Tahoe. Sounds good. Great talking to you. Thanks, Rick. Wow. Thanks to Ron Kiskis for that discussion today on trust. I really appreciate his time. Uh, love that trust equation that he talked about, the importance of credibility, reliability, intimacy over self-orientation. I hope folks uh, can take that home and apply it to their own personal or professional lives. And then plus the lessons he shared with us about vulnerability and humility and, and decisiveness and leadership. Great, great insights today. So let's end this podcast with the premise we started with that developing trusted partnerships can help you achieve a step change in performance for yourself and or your team. Some of the principles that we talked about in, in order to build trust were understanding the person or company's needs before seeking your own. Look for real understanding of the issues, drivers, and needs before seeking your own. And work out solutions so both parties can win. Most uh, partners or companies do agree to the principle of win-win, that both parties can win. And do it. Be reliable. Do what you said you're going to do. That's the most basic, fundamental trust-building block is meet your commitments, even your small ones. Be reliable and trustworthy. And as you meet those small commitments, it can lead to big trust and big change. And I love Ron saying, so the best way to sell is not to sell. And then I would add, run your partnerships with clear understanding and trust, not just contractual agreements. And if you follow these principles we've talked about today, you will and can create a step change, improvement in stress, productivity, energy, engagement, and shareholder returns. Thanks so much for spending some of your precious time with us today on the podcast. Please subscribe, comment, rate, like, and share this podcast with others who are passionate about personal and professional continuous improvement. Until next time, live a life of sustainable continuous improvement. Goodbye.